In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at the Sirah Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, inshallah, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register or for more info. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as-siratul nabawiyya, the prophetic biography. We've been talking about the conquest of Makkah uh, in basically all of its different assets, uh, in, in all of its different facets and aspects from the circumstances that led up to it, uh, the journey on the way to the conquest of Mecca, the actual unfolding of that day and the, the course of events themselves, and we've been talking about the aftermath of it as well. To some extent and to some degree, we're basically within that same subject and topic, that same moment of the Fath of Mecca, the conquest of Mecca. However, we are moving on to some of the now events and some of the things that happen in the aftermath of the conquest of Mecca. Most notably, what we'll be talking about today is uh, a couple of different things. We'll be talking about three things, uh, namely... Uh, the first couple of things, obviously, as you see there within, um, that are mentioned here in the title of today's session as well, and that is the oath in Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ gave the bay'ah, uh, took the bay'ah rather, the oath of allegiance from the Muslims, the new Muslims in Mecca. And so there are some very interesting, fascinating conversations that occur there, and it's very noteworthy. Number two, we'll be talking about the end of hijrah, the cessation of the hijrah as an institution that it was at that particular time earlier in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And I'll explain exactly what that means particularly. And then the third thing that we will be talking about is some of the very uh, noteworthy uh part of the Qur'an that was revealed at this particular time in the aftermath of the conquest of Mecca. So those are the three things, inshallah, we'll be talking about here today. The very first thing I wanted to talk about is the oath in Mecca. So there's a number of different narrations that I'll be kind of mentioning a few different ones because these are different accounts from different people and they all add like different, you know, dynamics and different perspectives. The very first narration that I'll mention here is that uh, Muhammad ibn Aswad ibn Khalaf, he says that his father Aswad mentions, this is a narration that Imam Ahmed mentions, that he saw the Prophet ﷺ taking the oath of allegiance from the people on the day of the conquest of Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ, he sat down, he mentions a place, Qadn Masqala, um, and this was basically uh, towards the northern side of uh, the city of Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ, that was one of the places where he basically set up 
And then he received people there and people came to him and they offered the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ. And he mentions, The Prophet ﷺ took the oath of allegiance from them, number one, stating the fact that they would dedicate their lives to living in accordance with Islam. That from this point on forward, they would live their lives according to Islam. And number two was shahada. Shahada, what that means here is that if need be, they'd be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice um, to defend what they believe in and to defend the community that they are now a part of. And so he took this, and he basically, um, in another narration, he mentions what's meant by shahada. So he clarifies that it wasn't so much the fighting. What it was, was, um, that he took an oath from them that they bear witness, they give testimony to the fact that there is no one worthy of worship except for Allah alone, and that Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, is the slave of God and the messenger of God. So then the narration goes on to mention, according to Imam Bayhaqi, فَجَاءَهُ nasu people continued to come to the Prophet ﷺ, older people, younger people, men, women, folk, everyone was coming. And the Prophet ﷺ took the same oath of allegiance from all of them. Number one, that they would live in accordance with Islam. And number two, that they testify that they now accept Allah as the only one worthy of worship. And that Muhammad ﷺ is not only the slave of Allah, but also the messenger of God. Similarly, there's another narration where Ibn Jarir al-Tabari, rahimahullahu ta'ala, he mentions in his tarikh that the Prophet ﷺ, when people started to gather to give the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ went and sat down at the place of Safa. The mountain of Safa, when we do Sa'i, where we start the Sa'i from, in Safa wal Marwata. So that mountain of Safa, he sat down there. <clears throat> and he started to give people the oath of allegiance there. That they believe in Allah, that they believe in the Messenger of Allah. And this is very powerful and very beautiful and very poetic. And if someone can recall, kind of go back, that was the place where the Prophet had stood. And he had delivered his first public call to his message. The first public address was from the mountain of Safa. Where Abu Lahab had spoken out and, you know, uh, spoken very rudely to the Prophet ﷺ. And rebuffed his, his call. And then the people dispersed from there. So think back in your head to almost, you know, 20 years ago. When the Prophet ﷺ is standing there at the mountain of Safa, calling people to Islam, and then everything's come full circle where he's sitting there at the mountain of Safa, now giving the oath of allegiance to the same people who wouldn't believe in him all those years ago. <clears throat> so the narration mentions that Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he was uh, sitting or he was standing a little bit down from where the Prophet ﷺ was standing, was sitting, excuse me. So Umar radiallahu ta'ala was standing a little bit away from where the Prophet ﷺ was seated. And part of the objective was so that he could basically usher people in, have them seated, and kind of, you know, welcome them into the gathering of the Prophet ﷺ. 
So the Prophet ﷺ was taking the oath from the people على سمعي وطاعتي لله ولرسوله فيما استطاعوا And the oath the Prophet ﷺ was taking from them was that they would obey Allah, that they would obey the Messenger of Allah to the best of their ability. That they would listen and obey, the, uh, obey Allah and the Messenger of Allah to the best of their ability. So after the Prophet ﷺ, he was done basically giving the oath of allegiance to the men. Then it was time for the Prophet ﷺ to give the oath of allegiance to the women. And this is where we see that the Prophet ﷺ, of course, that from a theological perspective, from a spiritual perspective, women are basically, and this, this, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric out there, and so a lot of times people are very hypersensitive to this subject, but we're talking about spiritually in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in obligation to Allah, in loyalty to the Prophet of Allah sallallahu that women folk are the equal of men in that regard. And there's not, it's not problematic to say that at all. Everyone is a slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And everyone has, has to stand before Allah. And everyone has to answer to Allah. And everyone is accountable before Allah. And everyone's faith is valid. And one person's faith is not subject to another person's faith and belief. But iman is something that each and every single human being is empowered with, is obligated by, and is honored with. And so the Prophet ﷺ, after, you know, uh, basically um, getting done with the men who were giving the oath of allegiance, the Prophet ﷺ then had a gathering for the women who wanted to give the oath of allegiance. <clears throat> so in that gathering, one of the very interesting uh, individuals and one of the very interesting moments in this gathering was that one of the women who came to give the oath of allegiance amongst the women to the Prophet ﷺ was Hind bint Utbah. Now Hind bint Utbah is a very notable individual because she's the daughter of Utbah, obviously as her, name, as her name says. And her father and her brother were killed in the Battle of Badr and they were amongst the most staunchest of the enemies to the Prophet ﷺ and to Islam. <clears throat> Not only that, but her husband was Abu Sufyan, who had led armies against the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. And to avenge the death of her father and her brother in the Battle of Badr, she was the one who had hired um, Wahshi to basically go and to assassinate the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Hamza, and then to mutilate his body. And when Abu Sufyan <clears throat> went outside of Mecca and brokered amnesty and peace with the Prophet ﷺ before the conquest of Mecca, she objected to that. So this was somebody who had quite a bit of a grudge against the Prophet ﷺ. She came to that gathering and the narration mentions that that she came completely covered up. She had her face wrapped up as well and nobody could recognize who she was. And she was very afraid as the narration mentions that because of everything that she had done, particularly in the case of Hamza, she just didn't know what to expect. Because from the culture that she was coming from, the, 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 the custom that she was a part of, you would never forgive somebody who had done that to your family. You would exact vengeance. But she was not yet familiar with who the Prophet ﷺ was. So she came very afraid of this. <clears throat> and when it came time to give the oath of allegiance, the Prophet ﷺ, he 
addressed the women folk and he said, Bayi'nani ala Allah tushrikna billahi shay'an. That promise to me, give me your word that you will not associate any partners with Allah. So Hind, very interesting woman, she says, and I'm mentioning this for a particular benefit and I'll explain in just a moment. She says, she speaks up in the gathering and she says, Wallahi innaka la alina ma la ala rijal. Why are you taking a different oath from us than you did from the men? The Prophet ﷺ didn't necessarily you know, respond. He continued on. And he said, وَلَا تَسْرِقْنَا وَلَا تَسْرِقْنَا Okay? That you will not steal. That was part of the oath. And again she speaks up and she says, إِنِّي كُنْتُ أَصَبْتُ مِنْ مَالِي أَبِي سُفْيَانَ أَلْهَنَةَ بَعْدَ الْهَنَةِ وَمَا كُنْتُ تَأَدْرِي أَكَانَ ذَلِكَ حَلَالًا لِي أَمْ لَا So, she says that you're saying that we won't steal, but she says, Abu Sufyan, she's talking about her husband, I sometimes will go and take his money as needed without necessarily discussing it with him. And I don't know if that falls under what you're mentioning right now or not. Abu Sufyan, who was present there, he says that, he says, whatever you've taken in the past, I don't mind. That's fine, I don't mind. I don't have any problem with it. So when this whole conversation happens, then the Prophet because remember, Hind, her face is covered up. And so then the Prophet says, Wait a second, wait a second. Are you Hind? Is this Hind right here? And she says, yes. And when she responds with yes, she doesn't only say yes, it's me. She doesn't only identify herself. She says, Naam fa'fu amma Allahu anka. She says, yes, it's me. Please forgive whatever has happened before. Let it go. Let bygones be bygones and may God bless you. So she throws that in there. She says, yes, it's me. And let bygones be bygones and you know, may God bless you. The Prophet wasallam, he says, no problem. And he continues on with the oath of allegiance. The Prophet ﷺ says, وَلَا تَزْنِينَ And that you will not commit adultery. That's the next part of the oath. And again, she says, she speaks up and she says, يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهُ Messenger of God, وَهَلْ تَزْنِي الْحُرَّةُ Would an honorable, noble woman ever commit adultery? Like why are, you, why, are, why are you making us take this oath? She's, like I said, she's a very uh, interesting person. A very strong personality. The Prophet ﷺ doesn't say anything. He continues. وَلَا تَقْتُلْنَا أَوْلَادَكُنَّا And that you will not kill your children. And she says, قَدْ رَبَّيْنَاهُمْ صِغَارًا وَقَتَلْتَهُمْ بِبَدْرٍ كِبَارًا فَأَنْتَ وَهُمْ عَلَمْ She says, look, we raised our kids and many of our, of our people died fighting you in Badr. You know and they know what happened between you. Again, it seems like she's still carrying some of the, just some of the, the weight of all those years of conflict. It's very interesting. I want everyone to really understand this. This is a woman saying this to the Prophet ﷺ. This is a person saying this to the Prophet ﷺ. We can't imagine speaking back to the Prophet ﷺ. And so, for a second, you're forced to kind of think that, didn't anyone do anything? Like, how would, a, how would a leader react or respond today? Right? 
How would a boss react or respond at work? Somebody said something back. A father, if their child says something. A scholar, if a community member says something. How dare you talk to me like that? Who are you? Do you know who you're talking to? Right? Because all of us carry a certain element of ego. The Prophet ﷺ, he was so empathetic and so merciful and kind and generous in soul and spirit that the Prophet ﷺ understood that this is a woman, this is a person who is still carrying a lot of that weight of all those years of conflict. And it takes time for those wounds to heal. For those wounds to heal, it takes some time. It doesn't happen overnight. And so you see the, the, the forbearance, the hilm, the calmness, the coolness, the thoughtfulness of the Prophet ﷺ. So when she says this, Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala, when he hears that comment, the narration mentions, فَضَحِكَ Umar حَتَّى اسْتَغْرَبَ Umar radiallahu ta'ala kind of like chuckles or laughs kind of awkwardly. Like, ha, 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 ha. Trying to break the tension like, this is the most, like, I don't know what to do with this situation. What do you do? Feel, you know, Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu is also kind of like, there are many occasions where somebody would kind of speak out or say something kind of out of line. Umar radiallahu anhu would grab him right away, but it's, it's, an, it's a sister, an older sister, and he's kind of like, I don't even know what to do. So literally the narration mentions he laughs kind of awkwardly to break the tension. Oh, ha, 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 And everyone's just kind of like frozen, like in the moment. And the Prophet ﷺ, the master of that forbearance, the Prophet ﷺ continues, makes no note of it. It's okay. It's okay. Get it out of your system. And this is another part of the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ, that if you don't talk it out with the person that you have some issues remaining with, then it's only going to fester and get worse and you're going to go to other people and talk to other people. So you just put everything out on the table and just work out your issues. Very honestly. And so then the Prophet ﷺ says, وَلَا تَأْتِينَ بِبُهْدَانٍ تَفْتَرِينَهُ بَيْنَ أَيْدِيكُنَّ وَأَرْجُلِكُنَّ The next element, the next part of the oath is that you will not slander. You will not slander, not make up lies about other people. And she again responds, she says, Wallahi inna ityan al-buhtani laqabihun. She says, that's a really terrible thing. And she says, there's other lots of terrible things like that as well. But basically, she's trying to say that's a terrible thing and we would never do that. Then the Prophet says, Wala ta'asinani. The next part of the oath of allegiance is that you give your word that you will not disobey me. And again she speaks up and she says, fi ma'rufin, fi ma'rufin. We will not disobey you in good things. As long as you're right, we won't disobey you. And again, the Messenger of Allah is always right. But you just kind of see, it takes time. And this conversation is almost therapeutic. They're working out 20 years worth of issues in this conversation. It's, it's actually quite remarkable and beautiful. That the Prophet ﷺ can bring someone along like this. You know, someone asked me one confrontational question, I'll never forgive that person. I'll hold the grudge against their children. Right? One community member talks to me the wrong way, I'll be mean to his kids when they come to the masjid. Hey, you, go, shoot. Right? I mean, just think about it, how we act. And this is Muhammad Rasulullah ﷺ. 
Sayyidul Awalin wal Akhirin, Imamul Anbiya'i wal Mursaleen, the leader of all of humanity, the, the crown jewel of prophethood. But there's a reason why he was given that station status. He was made for that position with this type of, you know, just, just big heart and generous spirit. Then the Prophet says to Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Bayi'uhunna wa saghfir lahunna Allah inna Allah ghafurur rahim. He says, similarly, take the oath of allegiance from the women folk. And then, you know, um, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for forgiveness on their behalf. And Allah is forgiving and merciful. Then Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu helped the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, uh, uh, kind of initiate all the people to give the oath of allegiance. And there's one specific note that's mentioned here, and there's quite a few narrations about this. Uh, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha and others mentioned this, that when the Prophet ﷺ would take the oath of allegiance with the menfolk, he would basically have them put their hands in his hand. But when the Prophet ﷺ would take the oath of allegiance from the womenfolk, he would not take their hand. But he would verbally take the oath of allegiance. Because that that's part of the instruction of the Prophet ﷺ. Those are part of the boundaries between men and women folk. That physical contact is prohibited. And so the Prophet ﷺ would not give the oath of allegiance with the hand, but he would verbally just take the oath of allegiance. لا يصافح النساء ولا يمس إمرأة أحلها الله له إلا إمرأة أحلها الله له أو ذات محرمين. So like Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha says, ما كان يبايعهن إلا كلاما. The Prophet ﷺ would not take the oath of allegiance from the women folk except only verbally. He would only verbally take the oath of allegiance from them. And there's a very interesting kind of conversation, that same one that I was mentioning before, where Hind bin Utbah, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha mentions that Hind bin Utbah at this particular time after the oath of allegiance, she came to the Prophet ﷺ individually and she had a comment for the Prophet ﷺ a follow-up comment, a thought she wanted to share, and she also had a question. I'll mention her question first, and I'll save the comment for later, because it's very impactful and powerful. The question she had was, very interesting. Um, she says, Inna Aba Sufyan, her husband Abu Sufyan, Rajulun Shahihun. She says he's a very stingy person. And she says, La yu'atini min nafaqati ma yakfini wa yakfi baniya. He does not give me enough you know, money, allowance, that is enough for me and the kids. Like he doesn't give me enough money to be able to pay the bills. So if I know where he keeps the cash, and I go there and I take the cash without telling him, without him knowing it, is that okay? Am I doing anything wrong? And the Prophet said, as long as you take it in, you know, in a fair amount, like you're not being unreasonable and ex being extravagant, absolutely go and take whatever you need for yourself and for your children. That's his responsibility. He's not doing you a favor by paying your bills. You're his wife. Those are his children. He's not doing anybody a favor. That's his responsibility. It's his God-ordained fard. Kasbul halali faridatun ba'd al-fara'id. The narration says that earning a lawful income for your family is an obligation after the initial obligations to Allah. Five times daily prayer and put some bread on the table. That's an obligation. So the Prophet told her, look, if he doesn't give you enough money where you can pay the bills, you can put food on the table, 
And you know where the money is, then you go and you take what you need. And this is something very interesting the Prophet ﷺ told uh, her at this time. The next thing that I wanted to mention was the comment, kind of a thought she wanted to share with the Prophet ﷺ. And Aisha radiallahu ta'ala mentions this as well. That after the oath of allegiance was done, Hind bint Utbah came to the Prophet ﷺ and she said, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of God, مِمَّا كَانَ مِمَّا عَلَى وَجْهِ الْأَرْضِ أَخْبَاءٌ أَحَبَّ إِلَيَّ مِنْ أَنْ يَذِلُّ مِنْ أَهْلِي أَخْبَائِكَ She says, O Messenger of God, before or previously, there was not a person that I wanted to see humiliated, that I would have loved to see humiliated more than you. There was basically, she's saying, there's nobody I hated more than you. And then she says, ثُمَّ مَا أَصْبَحَ الْيَوْمِ But what has transpired during this event? The compassion, the mercy, the understanding, the benevolence, the empathy, the generosity that you have shown us. It has changed me. It has changed my, my, my thoughts and the way I understand things. She says, مَا أَصْبَحَ الْيَوْمَ عَلَىٰ ظَهْرِ الْأَرْضِ أَهْلُ أَخْبَائٍ أَحَبَّ إِلَيَّ مِنْ أَنْ يَعِزُّ مِنْ أَهْلِ أَخْبَائِكَ She says, now there is no one that I would love to see honored and revered and respected on the face of this earth more than you. Meaning there's nobody I respect more than I respect you. There's no one I hated more than I hated you. But now there's no one I respect more than I respect you. And that is something that is truly, truly remarkable. All right? And that's why I was talking about the, 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 the wisdom of the Prophet. ﷺ. Hearing someone speak back to the Prophet ﷺ truly kind of shocks you a little bit. But you see the wisdom of the Prophet. He understood she's working through some issues. This conversation is therapeutic, it's cathartic. And she's working through the issues. And look where the conversation ends. Where she says, I, I, do, I do not know a more honorable human being than you. There's no one I respect more than I respect you. That's where she arrived at. See, that's the difference. The Prophet ﷺ was about the potential of people. He was about where he could get people. He was about, you know, where he can help people get to. Rather than just being demanding and turning, turning it into an issue about one's own ego and making it about yourself, the Prophet made it about the other person. So this person said something that they shouldn't say to me. Doesn't bother me. I'm okay. I know who I am. I know what I'm doing. I know what I stand for. I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm good. But it's about that other person. Where does that other person need to be? What is that other person dealing with? How can I help that other person get to where they need to go? That's the leadership of the Prophet ﷺ. He didn't make it about himself. He made it about other people. That's the, that's the preaching of the Prophet ﷺ. There's so many layers here. You look at the Prophet ﷺ as a leader because he made it about the other person. didn't make it about himself. You look at him as a preacher, as a da'i, because he made it about, the, he focused on the other person's needs. Not what he wanted or needed. You look at the Prophet ﷺ as a teacher, it's because he focused on his student. Rather than trying to stroke his own ego. 
and project his own, you know, his own, uh, whatever his own thoughts or his own sentiments onto the student. You look at the Prophet ﷺ as a mentor and a nurturer because he was constantly concerned about the betterment of the other person. And you can go on down the list. A community leader, a father, a husband, a big brother. Whatever all the different roles the Prophet ﷺ played. It was because of that empathy of the Prophet ﷺ, the selflessness of the Prophet ﷺ, the generosity of the Prophet ﷺ. That that's what made him so remarkable and that's what we need today. Now the second topic that I wanted to mention was the end of hijrah. The end of hijrah, the cessation of hijrah. Allow me to explain what I mean by that. When Makkah became very, very difficult and the work could not continue on in Makkah. Makkah was way too hostile of an environment to continue. And Medina became available. Where now there was a place where Muslims could go to and freely practice their deen and religion and grow and learn and practice and preach. All of it. That it actually became obligatory. It actually became mandatory on them to make the migration and go to the community in Medina. That was an obligation at that time. It was a requirement of a person's faith. Unless of course they were being prevented but somebody willingly saying like, nah, I'll just stay in Mecca. So what, I have to lie about not being a Muslim. But I'll just, I don't want to deal with it. That was problematic. That was like a major sin. And according to some at a particular point in time, during the life of the Prophet ﷺ, that was even tantamount to nifaq, hypocrisy. Very serious. So you had to migrate. So now that the conquest of Mecca happened, many of the Muslims who were coming into Islam at that time, they had questions. So Safwan bin, Safwan bin Umayyah, who we talked about previously, Safwan ibn Umayyah, someone mentioned to him, The only person who can go to paradise is someone who does the hijrah, the migration. You have to migrate to be a proper believer. So he was very confused. He said, He says, I will not go home until I go to the Prophet and clarify this. Do I have to leave Makkah now? Now that I've become Muslim? If I do, I will. But I need to clarify this with him. He says, I went and I asked the Prophet and he said, he said, now that the conquest of Mecca has occurred, there will be no more hijrah after this. Meaning the hijrah will not be mandatory. Hijrah still exists. The concept is still there. If someone wants to go from one place to another for the sake of their deen, for the sake of their religion, to learn about their religion, to be able to raise a family, to be able to put themselves in a more advantageous position spiritually, absolutely, that's a good thing and it's admirable. It's like we move to go to school, we move to, go to get a job. Why wouldn't you move for the sake of your deen if you think you could better your deen somewhere? Alright? But it's not an obligation anymore. It, it will not be mandated from this, on, this point on going forward. 
That's not a thing anymore. It was before the conquest of Makkah. It no longer is a requirement. But all that remains that a person needs to strive and struggle to practice their religion to the best of their ability. And a person needs to have a very good intention, high aspirations and goals about what they want out of themselves spiritually. But if you are called to action, if you are asked to step up to the line, to be able to serve your religion, then be willing to do so. So the Prophet basically said what remains is that type of activism, that type of involvement, be an active, involved member of the community, but that migration will not be mandatory, will not be required anymore. And there's many, many different conversations that are along the same lines, where there's another um, sahabi, who, Mushajir, who says that, I took my father Ma'bad to the Prophet Wasallam. And we went there with the intention to give the bay'ah, the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ, declare our faith, and also let him know that we would migrate with him from Mecca to Medina. And when we made that intention clear to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ said, Madatil hijratu li ahliha. Hijra has passed. That was a time when we required that. We no longer require you to come to Medina. But what we do require you, ubayyu'uhu ala al-islami wal-jihad, we require you to live in accordance with Islam and strive and struggle every day to better yourself and to practice your religion. That's the mandate now. That's what's required and that's what's mandatory. Another narration that the Prophet ﷺ said, ذَهَبَ أَهْلُ الْهِجْرَةِ بِمَا فِيهَا The people who did hijrah were the people who did hijrah. And now that is not a requirement anymore. But now, al-Islam wal-Iman wal-Jihad, now is that you practice the religion, you uh, increase your faith every day, and you strive and struggle to be the best person that you can. So much so that Imam Bukhari even mentions more narrations that the Sahaba used to teach this to the people as well. Mujahid, a tabi'i from the next generation, a great scholar uh, and Muslim of the next generation, he went to his, one of his teachers, one of the Sahaba, Abdullah bin Umar, and he said that, I want to make hijrah to Asham. I want to make hijrah to Asham. And Umar, uh, Ibn Umar told him, لا hijrata ولكن jihadun. He says there is no hijrah, but rather you strive and struggle to better yourself and learn your religion and practice your religion. So if that journey of bettering yourself takes you to a place like a sham, bismillah, then you go. But it's not a hijrah the way you're thinking about it. Where it's a requirement to move from one place to another. That is something that has passed. لا هجرة بعد الفتحي After the conquest of Makkah, that was not a mandate, that was not required anymore. But the Prophet ﷺ in another narration, he says that, um, or rather, excuse me, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. There's another narration in Bukhari where a couple of the tabi'oon, they say that Ata bin Abi Rabah um, and Ubaid bin Umaid, they went to go visit our mother Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. They went to go pay her a visit. She was a teacher of that generation. So they went to go visit her and then just, you know, ask her some questions and learn from her. And they asked her about the hijrah and she said, لا hijra اليوم. There's no hijrah today. كان المؤمن يفر أحدهم بدينه إلى الله عز وجل وإلى رسوله مخافة أن يفتن عليه. People used to have to do hijrah, but that's not required anymore. فأما اليوم فقد أظهر الله الإسلام. Today Allah has spread Islam far and wide. She's saying at her time. فَالْمُؤْمِنُ يَعْبُدُ رَبَّهُ حَيْثُ يَشَاءُ What's required of a believer is to worship your Lord wherever it is that you find yourself. 
Wherever it is that you find yourself. In Makkah, then Makkah. In Medina, then Medina. If halfway across the world, then halfway across the world. وَلَكِنْ جِهَادٌ وَنِيَّةٌ The only thing that is required of you is strive to better yourself every day and have high goals and aspirations and ambitions for yourself. The next thing and the last thing I wanted to talk about here is just some of the Qur'an that was revealed at this time and I'll specifically talk about two verses or two, two portions. The first one is in Surah Al-Hadid. In Surah Al-Hadid, ayah number 10, Allah says, لا يستوي منكم من أنفق من قبل الفتح وقاتل. Those who sacrificed for Islam before the conquest of Mecca, it is not the same. أولئك أعظم درجة من الذين أنفقوا من بعد وقاتلوا. Those who sacrificed for Islam before the conquest of Mecca, they are of a higher rank and status than those who sacrificed for Islam after the conquest of Mecca. And somebody say, that might, that's not fair. But that's easier, that, that, that's easier to say that it's not fair. But it's easier said than done. Because before the conquest of Mecca, the sacrifice that was required was everything. Was everything. So it's just not the same. It's not the same for those who sacrificed before and those who sacrificed after. So the Fatih of Makkah, the conquest of Makkah was a clear line and delineation and moment in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And then the last and the final thing I wanted to mention was, it is at this time of the conquest of Makkah that a very well-known surah of the Qur'an was revealed. And that is the surah we know as Surah An-Nasr. That the surah of the help of, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the surah of the victory from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, إِذَا جَاءَ النَّصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحُ That when the help of God arrives, and when the victory from Allah is delivered, وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدْخُلُنَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجًا And you see the people flocking into the religion of God, waves in, after waves, groups after groups. فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْهُ then praise and glorify your Lord and Master and seek forgiveness from Him. Without a doubt, He has always been, is, and will always be the most forgiving and willing to forgive. So this surah was revealed at this particular time and the Prophet ﷺ recited it to the Sahaba at this time. And there's a very beautiful story that talks about what this surah meant when it was revealed. It's mentioned in Bukhari, and I'll conclude with this, that Abdullah bin Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, كَانَ عُمَرْ يُدْخِلُنِي مَعَا أَشْيَاخِ بَدْرِ Some years after the Prophet ﷺ had passed away, Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu was the Khalifa, Amirul Mu'mineen, the leader of the Muslims. And he used to have a special council. And in that council were some of the most senior companions, particularly there were a lot, the most, most of the senior companions in that council, the senior council, had participated in the battle of Badr. They were old school. And so he says that Umar radiallahu ta'ala used to call me and make me sit in that senior advisory council. And I could tell that some of them were a little uncomfortable with this. Some were a little uncomfortable with this. فَقَالَ لِمَ تُدْخِلْ هَذَا مَعَنَا وَلَنَا أَبْنَاءٌ مِثْلُهُ Why does, you know, he, why, why do you ask this young man, he's a good young man, mashallah, but why do you ask this young man to come sit with us? We have children his age. 
And you ask him to come sit with us on the senior council. So Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, إِنَّهُ مِمَّنْ قَدْ عَلِمْتُمْ You know who he is and what his caliber is. فَدَعَاهُمْ ذَاتَ يَوْمٍ So one day he called the senior advisory council together. فَأَدْخَلَهُمْ مَعَهُمْ And he specifically asked for me. In another more extended narration, Abdullah bin Umar even says that he used to sometimes try to avoid, you know, being around when it was time for the council. But he asked for him and he told him to come join the council. And he says, And I realized that on that day, he was only asking me to come and sit with them and join the council because he wanted to prove a point to them. He was going to make a point that day. So he says to the council, What would you infer from the verses of the Qur'an, from the statement of Allah, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ That surah, what do you infer from that? فَقَالَ بَعْضُهُمْ So they, some of them answered the question. They said, أُمِنَّا أَنْ نَحْمِدَ اللَّهَ وَنَسَّغْفِرُهُ إِذَا نُسِرْنَا وَفُتِحَ عَلَيْنَا Some of them kind of like translated the surah and said that we've been told to praise Allah and seek forgiveness of Allah when we finally find victory, when we are helped and when we achieve victory, that we should be humble and we should praise Allah and we should ask forgiveness from Allah. Like basically kind of a paraphrasing a translation, an explanation of just the words of the surah. And some of them didn't have any comment to, act, ask, to, to add. And Umar radiallahu ta'ala did not respond. He didn't say anything. Then he turned to me, Abdullah ibn Abbas says, فَقَالَ لِي أَكَذَلِكَ تَقُولِ يَبْنَ عَبَّاسِ Hey, Ibn Abbas, would you, would you say the same thing that he just mentioned? Or do you have something more to add? فَقُلْتُ لَهِ He said, no, I have a little something more I would, I would very humbly add here. He says, مَا تَقُولُ What is that? فَقُلْتُ هُوَ أَجَلُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ سَمْ أَعْلَمَهُ لَهُ This surah coming down, what it's saying, how it's saying what it's saying, when it was revealed, under what circumstances it was revealed, all of this pointed towards the fact that the Prophet ﷺ was being told that his mission was almost complete. His time in this world was coming to an end. Now was going to be kind of the farewell tour. This is the beginning of the end. He needs to start wrapping things up. That's what he's being told. You need to start wrapping things up. Your mission has come to an end. It's coming to a close. And when he said that, uh, and he says, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحُ فَذَلِكَ عَلَامَةُ أَجَلِكَ And so that's a sign of the fact that your era has come to an end. فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرُ إِنَّهُ كَانَ تَوَابًا Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu comments then and he says, لَا أَعْلَمُ مِنَا إِلَّا مَا تَقُولُ He says, I understood from it exactly what you just said. And then Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said that this is why I invite him into the council. He might be young. He might be half your age, or even a third of your age. But he has wisdom, and he has knowledge. And he read the Qur'an directly with the Prophet And the Prophet made dua for him. Allahumma faqihu fi deen wa allimhu ta'weel. Oh God, give him the understanding of the religion. A deep, profound understanding of the religion. And give him the meaning, and allow him to, to understand the meaning of the Qur'an. 
And so the two things I wanted to mention here in conclusion was, number one, this surah was revealed at this time, and it was a very clear indication of the fact that the mission of the Prophet ﷺ was coming to a close now. So everything we talk about from here on forward, you need to kind of also look at it from the angle and the perspective that how is the Prophet ﷺ in this event, in this situation, wrapping things up. You have to keep that in mind. Because then you'll be able to learn from the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ. How do you conclude things? How do you wrap things up? How do you wind things down? And tie up all the loose ends. Profound wisdom in that. And then the second thing I wanted to mention here, as hopefully is obvious, that... This is a beautiful example, the story of Abdullah bin Abbas, about the potential that our young people have. Given the right attention, you know, tarbiyah, training, knowledge, education, nourishment, with the right environments created around them, with the correct opportunities being provided to them, and encouraging them and empowering them, this is what our young people have the potential to become. When the Prophet passed away, Abdullah bin, uh, bin Abbas was an early teen. Was in its teenage years, young man. But look what he was able to become. Even in his 20s, he was one of the wisest men of his time. And the Prophet gave him, gave him love and attention. Ya ghulam, inni u'allimuka kalimatin. Where he takes him on a ride on, on his animal and he says, Son, young man, young buck, I'm going to teach you some things. I need you to pay attention now. Like gives him time and affection and attention. Teaches him, trains him, talks to him empowers him and encourages him, makes dua for him. And look what this young man is able to become. This is the sunnah of the Prophet This is what we have to get back to. In terms of nurturing the future talent of our ummah. That's the greatest asset and the greatest resource we possess is the future generation. That has to stop being rhetoric. It has to stop being a slogan. It, just, it has to stop being something we say at fundraisers. But it has to become actual practice, day in, day out, in our communities, in our homes, in our societies, in our country, in the world, in our ummah. It has to become a reality. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow our youth to carry on the good work and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow them to realize their potential and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything we've said and heard. Subhanallah bihamdihi subhanakallah bihamdik nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Jazakumullah khairan.